This is Gulf Coast Life from WGCU. I'm John Davis. Thanks for joining us. Tomorrow morning, a U.S. district court hearing in Maryland will mark the latest step in a legal battle to help prevent extinction of the rice's whale the rarest whale on the planet. The species' small population is concentrated in the northeastern Gulf of Mexico, where they live year-round. Researchers with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration had genetic data, had genetic data collected on these marine mammals going back to the mid-2000s, but it wasn't until a 38-foot-long whale washed ashore in the Florida Everglades in January 2019 that scientists were able to determine this is an entirely new species and not Brutus whales that marine biologists had previously thought. In the fall of 2020, the nonprofit environmental advocacy organization Earth Justice filed a lawsuit challenging the Trump administration's official biological opinion about how oil and gas activity could impact imperiled species in the Gulf of Mexico, arguing that the administration's official position was flawed and didn't appropriately consider the likelihood of another environmental catastrophe like the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill in 2010. Now the National Marine Fisheries Service is asking a federal judge to dismiss the lawsuit. That request uh, to toss out the suit is what will be at issue during tomorrow's hearing. Joining me now for a closer look is Chris Eaton. He's a senior attorney with Earth Justice's Oceans Program. Chris Eaton, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And to engage with us and your fellow listeners about this conversation or any of our shows, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. On Twitter, we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. Now, Chris, before we get into any minutiae of the legal case, tell me a little background on Rice's whales. Because um, as I just mentioned, it wasn't really until relatively recently that we were even able to confirm that this is a unique species. How did that all come about? Yeah, so um, going back to about the 1960s uh, is when uh, the, the presence of these whales were was, was first known in the Gulf. Um, and for decades, they were assumed to, the, the, the Gulf whales were assumed to be part of the, the larger Brutus whale uh, population that's found through kind of across the globe and in, in tropical and subtropical waters. Um, and it wasn't until uh, the, the 2000s, 2010s, that, that genetic data showed that that these whales are, are different than, than the Brutus whales that are found throughout the globe. Initially, they were believed, researchers thought that they were a, a subpopulation or a, a subspecies uh, that was found just in the Gulf. And, and as you mentioned, the, the whale that was found in the Everglades in 2019 allowed researchers to look uh, not just at additional genetic data, but also the, the skeleton. And, and it was the, the skull of, of that whale uh, that uh, they discovered what was different from the skull of Brutus whales that are found elsewhere in, in the world. And, and uh, between that and, and new genetic data, uh, the, the researchers were able to determine that this is actually a unique species that's different from, from the Brutus whales that are found elsewhere. Would you say there's a significant difference in size between the Brutus whales and the Rice's whales, or, or is it pretty similar? They're they're pretty similar. Um, uh, I think the uh, it, it was like one small feature of the skull that that was kind of the thing that made the difference between the the rice's whales that, and and the the Brutus whales. Gotcha, gotcha. And and just so you know, people can get a, a clear mental picture. Are rice's whales 
kind of similar in appearance to what people generally have come to think of as whales. By that, I mean, you know, large baleen filter feeding whales. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Uh, these whales grow up to about 40 feet. Um, they're, uh, they're pretty sleek in appearance. Um, and, uh, you know, what, what's interesting about the, the, the rice whales here, or they're, they're the Gulf of Mexico's only year round resident baleen whale. Um, and so they're, you know, I, I know some, some folks call them the Gulf of Mexico whale because yeah. they're, they're basically the whale for, for the Gulf. Um, and is there a lot we simply don't know about rice's whales, um, due in part at least because there's, there's so few of them? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, there, there's not much known about their, their diet, for example. Um, uh, there's not much known about their, uh, kind of their, their life history. Um, there's, uh, um, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty rare. And so obviously a lot of times in order to study a species, you have to be able to find it. Uh, and so when there are so few of them in, in a large place like the Gulf, it's really hard to find individual whales and, and, and be able to, to, to track them. Um, but there have been some efforts to uh, put satellite tags uh, on the animals to, to get a sense for their, their diving patterns and their, their movement patterns. Um, as I mentioned, there's been, uh, you can take the, Researchers have taken samples, uh, basically skin samples, so they can uh, do some DNA testing, um, and that allows you to to uh, learn about the the genetics. Um, uh, you know, there are when the whales wash up, unfortunately dead, like the the one in the Everglades. Uh, that is what allows researchers to do things like look at the the skeletons and the stomach contents, and it, but that again. There's so few of them, and so it's very rare that, that one of those opportunities arises, which is why, uh, you know, it wasn't until 2019 that, that the, the species was identified as, as, as a separate species. And I understand rice's whales um, spend a lot of their time far from coastlines. That seems like a double-edged sword, uh, beneficial to them because they're, they're not going to so much be around near-shore human activity, but it also makes them more difficult to study. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And that's why, you know, often when you have whales and other animals that are, are closer to shore, um, when when they they die, they often wash up on shore and are found and can be studied. Um, as I mentioned, that's one way to study them. When they're further out to, to sea, they, you know, when they die, they sink and researchers don't find them. Uh, it takes a lot more effort to get boats and planes out there to study the, these animals. But, you know, the Gulf of Mexico, where, where these animals are is there's still a lot of human activity out there. Mm. Um, oil and gas activity, uh, in particular, um, vessels that large vessels that are transiting across the Gulf. Um, and so the, these whales are really susceptible to, to harm from those activities there, even though they're not necessarily close to shore. So the fact that they don't really migrate like like other whale species do, that can be a real detriment because they're just right up in that area. Um, and this is just talking about state waters here, and, and I'm sure you've likely seen it. You know, in Florida, we don't have oil rigs that close, but you cross the state line mm -hmm. into Alabama and it's a whole other story. 
Yeah, they uh, they don't migrate in the traditional sense. I think you know they're uh, again very little is known about about the these species, um, the, these whales, and I I think hi historically these whales have been the understanding is historically that the rice of whales were distributed throughout the Gulf of Mexico, hmm. um, and uh, you know now they are found almost entirely. Uh, off the the Florida coast um, from the Panhandle um, and, and and south and uh, and so that is one of the reasons why these these whales are are under uh, views and dangers their their historic range has, has been constricted and that you know there are probably reasons you know whales are are you know relatively uh, uh, I hesitate to use the word smart, but, you know, they're relatively smart and don't want to go to areas where there's a lot of noise and a lot of activity. And so that 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 may be why they're they're avoiding the western and central Gulf of Mexico, where you have a lot more oil and gas activity. Uh, but there's re new research that came out just last year. Um, one of the ways that researchers can learn about these animals is that uh, rice whales have a, a unique call, a unique vocalization. Um, and so researchers can basically put listening devices in the water and listen and, and they can hear whale calls coming from the area um, and they can identify certain calls as coming from rice whales. And there's new research that have heard these rice whale calls in the western and central Gulf over towards Texas, Louisiana. Um, and so now we know that even though the whales are centered around, they center their population around Florida, that they do travel to the western central Gulf where they're encountering this oil and gas activity. Gotcha. And, and I had mentioned earlier, it's, it's estimated that there are fewer than 100 of them in the wild. Um, is that our best estimate? Are there any better numbers we have at this point? Uh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to really know for sure. There are estimates kind of have come in anywhere between uh, I think I think most of the numbers are in the the 20s to to I think up 51 individuals and so uh, it's just hard to know with precision what that that number is and so that's why often the researchers will say well we know we know for sure there are less than a hundred uh, but it's really hard to know the exact number um, usually these numbers are, are you know based on a couple of sightings of whales and then they're various statistical and other modeling uh, methods are used to extrapolate those few observations to try to come up with an estimate of the population, but it's, it's fairly uncertain. And given how few there are, um, can I assume they've been extended some protected status through the Endangered Species Act? And if so, yeah, I, okay, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Um, with your with your follow-up <laughs> oh yeah just what kind of protections uh, come with you know whatever status they have been given through the endangered species act sure uh yeah a couple of years ago the national marine Fisheries service uh listed the the species as an endangered species uh under the endangered species endangered species act and there are two levels of protection that that species can have under that act there's threatened and then the 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 greater level of protection is endangered uh and first they were listed rice whales were listed as, as protected as a subspecies um and then once they were identified as a new species now they're they're listed as their own species and so there there are kind of two main ways that this listing provides protection to the species one is it prohibits the the legal term is take 
uh, of the species, which which essentially means no one is allowed to do anything to to harm or kill or uh, do anything harmful to individual rice as well species uh, or individual rice as whales. And then the second uh, the second way and, and was relevant to our lawsuit is that it requires when federal agencies are taking any actions, for example, uh, issuing any permits or leases, uh, before doing that, they need to confer with the National Marine Fisheries Service to engage in a process to make sure that the action they're taking is not going to cause undue harm to listed species. So uh, will not cause undue harm to the racist whale. And part of that process results in mitigation measures uh, to reduce the amount of harm that, the, that those federal actions will have on the species. And what do we know about how Rice's whales were impacted by the 2010 BP oil spill disaster? Because this seems to be, in some ways, at the heart of the lawsuit filed by uh, Earth Justice. Yeah, that uh, that disaster, you know, in addition to, uh, you know, obviously had widespread catastrophic harm across the Gulf, um, and and researchers estimate that uh, about 48% of the rice's whales known habitat was covered in oil during that disaster, uh, and up to uh, uh, about 17% of the population they estimate of the rice's whales population was, was killed by the the oil spill. Um, and researchers estimate that it would require uh, almost 70 years for the population to recover from that harm. Uh, to the state that they were in uh, before the the spill, so we're still decades away from from the population recovering. Yeah. Well, if you're just joining the show, we're speaking with Earth Justice Oceans Program Senior Attorney Chris Eaton about the ongoing legal battle for federal action for critically endangered rice's whales that were only discovered a few years ago and live exclusively in the northeastern Gulf of Mexico. A federal court hearing tomorrow could decide the future of a lawsuit aimed at protecting the whales. And again, if you'd like to comment on our conversation or engage with fellow listeners, we're on Facebook at WGCU Public Media, and on Twitter we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. So, Chris, tell me about this lawsuit and, and Earth Justice's rationale for, for arguing that the Trump administration's biological opinion was flawed when it comes to risks posed to imperiled species in the Gulf from oil and gas activity. Sure. Well, as I, as I just was describing, one of the protections of the Endangered Species Act is that it requires uh, federal agencies to talk to, basically confer with the Fisheries Service and produce this biological opinion. Um, and the... The last time this had happened for, for threatened endangered species in the Gulf was back in 2007. And after the Deepwater Horizon spill, the agencies realized that they had underestimated the, the risk of oil spill harm and, and, and that populations of various species had declined as a result of the spill and they had to take another, do another round of analysis. And so uh, about, about 10 years later, the Trump administration released this new biological opinion that uh, evaluating basically the effects of everything that the government does to authorize offshore oil and gas development in the Gulf. So leasing, permitting, and uh, and, and we and our clients filed the, this lawsuit because that biological opinion contains a number of, of problems. Um, and and I, uh, I think the you know one is it underestimates the oil spill the risk of another oil spill it says there will not be another 
BP disaster in the Gulf. Uh, it says oil spills are relatively harmless to species, which we know is not true. Uh, it does not use updated population numbers after the Deepwater spill, uh, Deepwater Horizon spill. Uh, you know, there are a number of other problems, but, in, but one really important one is that it does not contain adequate uh, mitigation or protection for, for rice as whales and really leaves that species at risk of going extinct as a result of oil and gas development in the Gulf of Mexico. And tell me some more about, you know, the importance and impact of these biological opinions being accurate. You know, how, how are they used and, and how often are they typically updated? Sure. So, um, you know, these, these biological, biological opinions need to come out before a federal agency can, can take action. So uh, the Department of Interior needs to have a valid biological opinion in place. Uh, before it can issue new oil and gas leases or issue oil and gas permits. And the biological opinion is going to govern uh, the mitigation measures that are are put into place. It's going to make sure that uh, agencies don't do something that is going to cause a degree of harm that is is too much for a species to bear. Um, and it's really important that the analysis is accurate. Uh, if you have you know, if you're underestimating effects, you know, you're going to say it's going to say, oh, biological opinion says you can do this action, not going to cause too much harm to the species. If you've underestimated that, now you you're, have the potential to actually uh, send the species towards extinction. So, um, you know, this is what, what's governing uh, how federal actions are, are, are working, uh, you know, to uh, avoid undue harm to species. All right. And now I understand the National Marine Fisheries Service wants this lawsuit tossed out. That's what tomorrow's hearing is all about. Um, on what grounds? What are they saying? So uh, a couple of uh, a couple of months ago, um, and I realized I neglected to answer the second part of your question, which is how often are the and the answer is every couple of years. Basically, the, these biological opinions need to be updated if there is new, significant new information. And uh, a couple of months ago, the Department of the Interior sent uh, the fishery service a letter saying uh, that they would like to reassess their oil spill risk um, analysis and ask the fishery service to complete a new biological opinion uh, in about two years. And the problem is that, that you know, they're asking just to reassess the OSBO risk, but are not going to reassess all of these other issues that this lawsuit is about, all of these other problems with the biological opinion. And so the fisheries service is asking the court to essentially, uh, it, it, it technically known as a, a remand, basically send the case back to the fisheries service and say, you know, we are going to put out a new biological opinion, so the court doesn't need to do anything with the one that's challenged. Um, and that functions as basically getting rid of kicking the case out, getting rid of the litigation. So, so the Fisher Service now is not going to be uh, the court is not going to be weighing whether the current biological opinion is invalid. It would remain in place for the next two years uh, while the the Fisher Service thinks about um, producing a new biological opinion. So that's that's really what's at issue here. Is you're worried about what's going to happen if this current biological opinion is remaining the one in power and the one in influence for the next couple of years. Yeah. So there, there are kind of two, two main problems. One is that, you know, 
this biological opinion would remain in place for at least two years with uh, the inadequate protections. Um, and the Fisheries Service has said that the death of just one female racist whale could be catastrophic for the population, could send them towards extinction. And so we are concerned that that could happen in the next two years because protections are, are inadequate. Um, and then the other concern we have is, you know, the Fisheries Service says they're going to put out a new biological opinion in two years, um, but they're not saying they're going to fix the issues with this one. And we know from from past experience, the last biological opinion took them 10 years to complete. Mm. Um, and so, you know, there's no guarantee that this is going that they're going to, to have this new biological opinion in two years. Um, you know, we're really concerned about about continued lengthy delay in, in getting a new biological opinion and sufficiently protective mitigation. And, you know, I, I think Rice says whales make a great poster child for this, you know, broader legal action. But is there more at stake here? And by that, I mean, couldn't protections you're seeking through an updated biological opinion benefit many other marine species in the Gulf? Absolutely. Um, the our, our case, you know, has there, there are a lot of claims pertaining to race of whales. There are also claims uh, about protections for threatened endangered sea turtles um, for Gulf sturgeon. Um, you know, one of the major risks to uh, race of whales is, is vessel strikes. Um, these whales spend a lot of time at the surface, oil and gas vessels. There's thousands and thousands of oil and gas vessel trips um, may hit these whales. Um, and if we have mitigation for those vessels to reduce strike risk, that also reduces strike risk to turtles. Uh, if we, uh, you know, oil spills is another problem. If we're reducing the risk of oil spill harm to rice as well, that, you know, that reduces the risk of oil spill harm to uh, threatened endangered sea turtles, uh, fish, uh, coastal communities. Um, you know, there, there are really big implications of, of having, uh, you know, mitigating harm from oil and gas development in the Gulf. Gotcha. Well, we are about out of time. I'm sorry, but I want to thank my guest. We've been speaking with Earth Justice Oceans Program Senior Attorney Chris Eaton. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time, and I look forward to reconnecting with you soon to explore the future of Earth Justice's efforts to protect the rice as well. Yeah, thanks again for having me on. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org GCL. There you can also find a link to Earth Justice's lawsuit as well. Or you can subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Jared Gonzalez and yours truly. Our direct director is Richard Chinqui, and our social media coordinator is Tara Callaghan. For now, thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO, Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida. <laughs>